Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this new podcast series, we explore elements of American opera, production and reception histories, social contexts, historical valences, and more through our artist and scholar community. In this episode, Dr. Holly Replogle Wong highlights and celebrates the work of five African-American composers from the first part of the 20th century. Tickets to LA Opera's 22-23 season are available now at laopera.org. Hello and welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm Dr. Holly Replogle Wong. I'm a musicologist. I teach at the Herb Alpert School of Music at UCLA, and I am delighted that LA Opera Connects has invited me to speak in this podcast series, Exploring Topics in American Opera. In this podcast, uh, we'll spend some time with five African-American composers from the first part of the 20th century. And we'll be highlighting one opera by each composer. So we have Scott Joplin, Henry Lawrence Freeman, William Grant Still, James P. Johnson, and Shirley Graham Du Bois. I'll offer a bit of background on each composer, a bit of biography. Uh, we'll consider their cultural context and milieu, share a bit about some of the obstacles they faced in their careers, and celebrate their professional successes. Now, all five of these composers I listed, um, they wrote music for lots of different venues and purposes, concert works, works for theater, popular music, music for professionals, music that was published for amateurs. And I'll touch on the variety of musical influences that these composers drew upon in their work. And each of them wrote at least one opera. A couple of them wrote several. William Grant Still and Henry Freeman uh, wrote several operas. They all faced challenges getting their operas performed to get that premiere, and then for the opera to survive after its premiere and keep getting performed. Um, and this is something we will explore further in this podcast as well. Uh, so please join me and learn more about these five remarkable composers of American opera and their works. So when you hear the name Scott Joplin, you probably think first of his ragtime piano pieces, right? Maple Leaf Rag, The Entertainer. Um, but did you know that he was also a composer of opera, too, in fact? Um, his first opera was entitled A Guest of Honor. It premiered in 1903. It was about a dinner hosted by President Theodore Roosevelt at the White House in 1901 for Booker T. Washington. And this opera is unfortunately believed to be lost. But what we do have is the piano vocal score of Scott Joplin's second opera, Tremonitia, which he ended up having to pay to be published in 1911. 
Scott Joplin grew up in Texarkana, Arkansas. He was born in 1868. Um, His parents were laborers and they were also musicians. His mother was especially supportive of her son's musical abilities. And Scott Joplin ended up studying piano and theory and the history of classical Western music with uh, Julius Weiss who was a German-Jewish immigrant who had moved to Texarkana to tutor the children of a wealthy lumber magnate. And Joplin came to his attention, and he felt that Joplin was very talented. And Weiss worked with Joplin for five years, um, never charging Joplin's mother for piano lessons and music lessons. Through this relationship, Joplin acquired a lifelong appreciation for Western European classical music and opera. After studying with Weiss, Joplin ended up working as a traveling musician for several years. He ended up in Chicago during the 1893 World's Fair, and he was there playing along with uh, many ensembles that were playing in the ragtime style that he had been playing for quite some time as a traveling musician. Soon after the World's Fair, Scott Joplin started to publish his own compositions. So through these varied career experiences, Joplin was in a position to combine his classical music training on the piano with influences from folk songs that his parents had taught him and the popular song that was all around him. And the influence from all of these meld into each other. His ragtime piano pieces, when they were first published, um, were published with something of an intent as though they were like classical music and that what was written on the page was intended to be played as it was on the page and not improvised upon as one would in a popular music situation. So the intent with the published piano pieces for Joplin, or to Joplin's mind, was that you would play what he wrote on the page, uh, which is an expectation, of course, for classical music. Joplin ultimately uh, moved to New York City in 1907, and one of the things he did while there was um, seek out support for his opera concept, Tremonitia. Tremonitia was a more personal piece for Scott Joplin. The story was set in the region of his childhood in rural Arkansas. The lead character of the opera, Tremonitia, is a young black woman who receives an education from a white person in exchange for her parents' labors. And then Tremonitia goes home to her community and her family to uplift them with the education that she had received, so to better her community by bringing her experience and her education home. It's a story of personal uplift through education, which is a belief that Joplin held personally. And it's an opera that is a musical melange of Italian opera, parlor song, and black music, reflecting the music that he'd heard and played in his lifetime. This was an opera, though, that received endless rejections at first when he was first shopping the score around, which is what eventually drove him to publish it on his own dime. And then he paid for a concert performance of the opera uh, with himself on the piano accompanying the singers. But Joplin ultimately did not live to see a professional mounting of Tremonitia, and in fact, he died rather young um, at the age of 47 in 1917. The first fully staged performance of Tremonitia was in 1972, over 50 years after his death. The staging was in Atlanta. It was put up by the Afro-American Music Workshop of Morehouse College. And there were some pretty big names involved with this production. Robert Shaw uh, was conducting. Catherine Dunham did the choreography and staging. 
This production led to another production at the Houston Grand Opera in 1975, and then from there it went on to the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., and then Broadway. So several professional uh, productions within a short time span after that initial performance in 1972. So these stagings of Tremonitia, of course, coincided with a mid-1970s ragtime revival and resurgence of interest in Scott Joplin, thanks in part to the 1973 film The Sting, which was plastered with one of Scott Joplin's pieces, The Entertainer, which ended up bringing about something of a resurgence of interest in Joplin's piano pieces and his work generally. Um, In 1976, the Pulitzer Committee awarded Scott Joplin a special posthumous bicentennial Pulitzer Prize for Tremonitia. This is an opera that is often referred to as a ragtime opera, and it does include some ragtime and ragtime influences, though there are really only, you know, three really ragtime numbers in the opera, including the incredible closing number, A Real Slow Drag. And I'll play a quick snippet of it here. This is a celebration number. Tremonitia has been made the leader of her community after she demonstrates mercy and wisdom towards the villains who had wronged her in the story of the opera. The recording I'm going to play is from uh, the 1982 Houston Grand Opera production, so a recording of it that was made in 1982. And this is soprano Carmen Balthrop as Tremonitia. So it's just a short snippet to give you a taste of what um, you know the final number of this opera is like. But I really encourage you to seek out a real slow drag and all of Tremonitia, really, and give it a watch and a listen. Scott Joplin's Harry Lawrence Freeman. Harry Lawrence Freeman was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1869 to parents who were somewhat well off. They were landowners. Harry Lawrence Freeman was mostly self-taught in music as a child. Um, He had a lot of experience singing in boys' quartets, and he worked as a church organist when he was very young. When he was 18 years old, he saw a production of Wagner's Tannhäuser and was inspired from there to compose and to compose music for theater, including opera. He wrote his first opera in 1891, and he founded the Freeman Grand Opera Company in order to have his first operas performed. And uh, his first opera was performed at the Deutsches Theater in Denver, Colorado. And this is not the first time that Freeman founds an entity to enable Black artists to perform and to train in music. In fact, this was a strategy and a business model that Freeman and his family absorbed and refined throughout their lives and a necessity in an America where Black artists were barred from writing for and performing with mainstream, that is, white professional stage companies in many cities across the country. 
1893, Freeman studied with the conductor of the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra, Johann Beck. And Freeman started to be known in the press as, quote, the colored Wagner, um, as some of his works then were programmed and performed by the orchestra and his name started to get out there. And he was not just an opera composer. He also wrote for Black Vaudeville and Black Musical Theater Companies um, while he was working and touring, actually, with Ernest Hogan's musical comedy group. He met singer and actress Charlotte Lewis Thomas, who was more commonly known as Carlotta. And they married, and they had a son, Valdo, and Valdo also grew up and became a professional singer, too. He was a baritone. The Freeman family then moved to Harlem in New York City. And while they were there, they founded the Negro Choral Society, the Freeman School of Music, and the Negro Grand Opera Company, for which Freeman taught and wrote music, and his wife and son were teachers and performers and business managers for all of these ventures. It was in New York City that Freeman wrote his 13th opera, Voodoo. He finished it in 1914, but did not get it performed until 1928. This was uh, several years after he founded the opera company. The opera was first heard by the public as a radio broadcast in May of 1928 on WGBS, which broadcasted out of the Gimbel's department store. Um, and then it was staged at the 52nd Street Theater. Voodoo is a three-act grand opera. It is um, set in Louisiana during the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, and it tells a story of a fantastical love triangle on a plantation. The music is a combination of styles. The Wagner influence is definitely audible, but musical comedy and spirituals all make their way in as well. The reviews from the white press were very condescending, um, and they ended up expressing quite a lot of anxiety, actually, about this merging of European classical music with black music. The black press noticed that Freeman had paid for the production with his own money and called out for more support, but the run of the production was cut short due to low ticket sales. Freeman and his son tried to mount other productions, um, but were unable to do so in Freeman's lifetime, and he passed away in 1954 at the age of 85. The first production of Voodoo since 1928 took place in 2015, and it was a joint production by the Harlem Opera Theater, Morningside Opera, and the Harlem Chamber Players. And I'll play a little snippet here from Act One. This is a duet called Oh Radiant Night. It's performed by Janina Burnett and Joanna Marie Ford. This is from the 2015 production. Oh, we peaceful bark doth ride, the wind 
Now, Henry Lawrence Freeman's career overlaps with the Harlem Renaissance, that intellectual and cultural revival of African-American art and literature and politics, with Harlem and Manhattan of the 1920s being the epicenter of all this. The Freeman family, Brownstone and Harlem, became something of a salon for artists involved with the Harlem Renaissance. U.B. Blake and Noble Sissel, Marian Anderson, uh, Lena Horne. But Freeman was of an older generation. He was a contemporary member of Scott Joplin's. And he and Joplin actually met at some point to discuss opera. And it's possible Freeman may even have advised Joplin's a bit on some revisions of Tremonitia. So while Freeman was uh, you know, definitely around for the growth of the Harlem Renaissance, its expression of ideals, cultural politics, and representation, Freeman's operatic work does reflect a cultural politics that is not as modern as some of his contemporaries of the Renaissance. Which brings us to William Grant Still. William Grant Still was 25 years younger than Freeman. He was a young man in the early years of the Harlem Renaissance. After serving in the Navy during World War I, William Grant Still moved to Harlem in 1918 and lived there until 1931. So he um, was in Harlem during the heyday of the Renaissance. William Grant Still was acquainted with the Freemans. He played in pit orchestras alongside Cecil and Blake. Um, he wrote classical music pieces that set contemporary poems by Langston Hughes and Elaine Locke and others. Now, William Grant Still had formal training in classical music. He studied violin when he was young. He picked up the cello and the oboe. He went to Wilberforce University in Ohio, conducted the band, and started to arrange and compose while there. He spent some time working for songwriter W.C. Handy before he went on to Oberlin College, and he studied music with George Chadwick of the elite Boston School of Composers and also with the renowned experimental composer Edgar Varese. Varese was an advocate for Still, and um, he programmed some of Still's compositions on the concerts of the International Composers Guild that Varese was um, organizing. So William Grant Still racked up a lot of firsts in the mainstream classical music world. Um, he was the first African-American composer to have a piece performed by a professional American orchestra. In the 1930s, the Rochester Philharmonic performed his Symphony No. 1, subtitled Afro-American. Um, and this is a piece of orchestral classical music that incorporates jazz and blues harmonies and rhythms. Still was also the first African-American to conduct a major symphony orchestra. He conducted the L.A. Phil at the Hollywood Bowl in 1936, and he conducted a performance that included some of his own works. Still's opera, Troubled Island, was the first by an African-American to be performed by a major opera company, the New York City Opera, in 1949. And this became the first opera that was written by an African-American to be televised. And, you know, we may feel complexly about firsts like this. Firsts like this are to be celebrated, yes. And at the same time, they're also a reminder of the, you know, exclusion of people like Still from the concert and operatic world. So Troubled Island is a three-act opera with a libretto by Langston Hughes and also by Verna Arvey, who was Still's wife. Hughes and Still started on 
the opera in the 1930s. But Langston Hughes ended up having to go off as a journalist to cover the Spanish Civil War. And so Verna Arvey stepped in to finish the project. Verna Arvey was an accomplished writer and pianist. She was the daughter of Russian Jewish immigrants, grew up in Los Angeles. She went to Manual Arts High School, and she had a career as a concert pianist, playing for the CBS Network Orchestra and for the LA Phil. And Arvey and Still met in 1930, while Still was in Los Angeles. Uh, And they married in 1939, and they had to drive to Tijuana for the ceremony because interracial marriage was illegal in California at the time. Troubled Island was premiered by the New York City Opera in 1949, and it's a tragic opera set in Haiti in 1791. The main character is Jean-Jacques Dessalines, and it depicts his leadership of the Haitian Revolution through him declaring himself emperor, the ultimate corruption of his leadership, and eventual assassination by his opponents. It was a very ambitious opera. You know, it's a large cast, spectacular sets with a grand historical theme. For the premiere, the lead roles of Dessalines and his first wife, Azalea, were played by white opera stars in dark makeup. At the second performance, African-American opera singer Lawrence Winters took over the role of Dessalines for the rest of the run. Opening audiences adored the opera, um, but it ended up receiving mixed reviews from white critics who were not rooting for a black opera composer to succeed. Since the opera's premiere, it's not often performed, um, except in excerpts. A full production took place in 2013 by the South Shore Opera Company of Chicago with an all-black cast, chorus, and a conductor. I'll play a brief clip from this opera. This is the aria sung by Dessalines called I Dream a World.
So on to another composer of the Harlem Renaissance, a contemporary of Still, James P. Johnson. James P. Johnson is probably best known as one of the first great stride pianists, a performer who bridged ragtime and jazz in the 1920s, a songwriter who wrote the hit song The Charleston, um, a teacher of Fats Waller, the favorite accompanist of Bessie Smith and Ethel Waters a very distinguished career in popular music and musical theater. And he also wrote symphonies, a piano concerto, which had orchestral arrangements by William Grant Still. He also wrote chamber music and light opera. James P. Johnson grew up in New Jersey. His mother was a church singer and pianist. He grew up listening to Scott Joplin ragtime music and was self-taught on the piano. And then he went on to study piano formally while also working as a ragtime pianist. He recorded piano roles for mechanical pianos at the Aeolian Company, alongside George Gershwin, who also recorded piano roles for these mechanical pianos. And James P. Johnson also recorded for Black Swan Records in the 20s and 30s, which was a record company founded by W.C. Handy. Um, William Grant still was involved doing some A&R work for this label. James P. Johnson wrote a one-act opera called The Organizer, and it was a collaboration again with poet and Harlem Renaissance luminary Langston Hughes. The plot is about union organizing among Black workers in the 1920s, specifically sharecroppers in the South, who are inspired by a labor organizer to demand justice from their landlord. The music is a combination of Black popular music, jazz, swing, blues, ragtime, within the classical framework of an opera. It was performed in 1940 at Carnegie Hall in New York. It was part of a series of events that were put up by the International Ladies Garment Workers Union during a convention. But then it was not performed again. Um, Langston Hughes' libretto survived and has been available as part of his published collection for decades, but the score was believed lost until the vocal score was found among some papers from Eva Jesse, who was a choral director um, who had worked on several musicals, including the first production of Porgy and Bess, and apparently she'd worked on The Organizer, too. Like Joplin's Tremonitia, we had the piano vocal score, but an orchestration had to be created in order for the work to be performed by a full ensemble. And then it was premiered for the first time in 60 years in Detroit and then Ann Arbor in 2002. I'm going to play a bit of uh, Hungry Blues. This is one of the songs that did survive apart from the opera's score for many years because James P. Johnson recorded it in 1939. This recording, you'll hear James P. Johnson on the piano. The singer is Anna Robinson. In the opera, this song would have been sung by a male character. Uh, for this recording, which was released as a popular song, um, you have Anna Robinson singing it. Thank you. 
back them hungry blues Nothing in this world to lose People telling me to choose Between dining line and keep on crying But I'm tired of them hungry Okay, last but in no way least, Shirley Graham Du Bois and her epic opera, Tom Tom. Shirley Graham Du Bois was born in Indianapolis, Indiana in 1896. She was the daughter of a minister, a minister who moved around a lot. So much of her musical training when she was young came from the black church. Um, But she also had formal piano lessons. And then when she was older, attended several classical conservatories to study music. She married her first husband in 1929. They had two sons. In 1926, she traveled to the Sorbonne in Paris, France to study music composition. And a year later, she divorced her first husband. When she returned to the States, she then attended Howard University and worked as a music librarian. Soon after, she became head of the music department at Morgan College until 1931 when she went to Oberlin College to earn a master's degree. She became the director of the Chicago Negro Unit of the Federal Theater Project, part of Roosevelt's uh, Works Progress Administration. And she worked there until 1939, whenever the FTP was shut down after protests by anti-communist and white supremacist groups who wanted very badly to defund the Federal Theater Project. All the while, as she's attending school and uh, working for theater projects, uh, Shirley Graham is writing and composing, and she tried many times to get her work onto Broadway, into mainstream Broadway venues, um, and ultimately turned to Black theater companies to have her work performed. She catapulted into the most elite African-American circles in 1951 when she married W.E.B. Du Bois. After they married, they toured Ghana, and since they were subject to very intense scrutiny from the United States government because of their involvement with the Communist Party, uh, they ended up moving to Ghana and becoming citizens in 1961. After her husband's death, Shirley Graham Du Bois um, went to Cairo after the coup d'etat in Ghana and eventually settling in China, where she passed away at the age of 80 in 1977. So Shirley Graham Du Bois had an incredibly fascinating life. Let us return to one particular moment um, in 1932. She's at Oberlin College. She's 35 years old. She's completing her three-act opera entitled Tom Tom, an epic of music and the Negro. 
Um, it was a work that was commissioned by the Stadium Opera Company, uh, which was a short-lived opera company that presented two years of grand opera at the Cleveland Municipal Stadium right after it was built. And it was an enormous production. Um, it had an all-black cast and orchestra, and it was the first opera written by a, an African-American woman to be performed by a major company in the United States. A crowd of 10,000 turned out to see the spectacle, um, and they had a 200-person chorus, a live elephant, an onstage waterfall. And the production um, also had a live radio broadcast of the performance as well. So you had thousands of people in attendance live and then many more listening in over the radio. The opera tells this story of the Black diaspora over centuries. And Shirley Graham Du Bois uses several different musical genres in order to situate the story throughout the different acts. So Act One takes place in West Africa. And for this, she adapted some West African folk music, this, and she was inspired by her time at the Sorbonne, where she met musicians in Paris who were of the West African diaspora. In Act Two, which takes place on an American southern plantation in 1865, Graham draws upon choral arrangements of African-American spirituals and also European opera. And then finally, Act Three takes place in Harlem of the 1920s, and uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois merges cabaret song and modern opera. Shirley Graham Du Bois was very interested in Black music history and was very interested in understanding how Black music is interconnected through time and throughout the diaspora. The score was assumed lost until relatively recently when it was found at Harvard University, uh, which led to the production of a live stream event um, at Harvard, which was produced by Dr. Lucy Kaplan. Um, the event was entitled Listening to Tom Tom. It took place in 2018, and a recording of this event is available online. I'll play a brief snippet of a performance of an aria from Act 3. This aria is called No Time, and it's performed by soprano Candace Hoyes and pianist Kyle Walker.
So uh, we come to the end of this tour of American operas from the first half of the 20th century, operas written by African-American composers who all had varying degrees of allegiance to popular and classical music, um, and yet all made efforts to fuse and blend um, this variety of musical influences, even as they met with ongoing systemic obstacles to getting their work produced. Historically, major arts organizations have tended to center works by white composers and white male composers working within the boundaries of the Western European classical canon. The classical canon is ultimately a system that is, you know, arbitrary, that uh, upholds assumptions about what kinds of music are more valuable than others, which is by nature informed by structural sexism and racism. And as such, the work of Black composers has been erased in traditional histories of opera. And yet all of these Black composers that we talked about today built networks of artists and created opportunities, found communities or created communities to support their work. Uh, I mentioned a few opera and theater companies in this podcast, but there were many others. The Pekin Theater in Chicago comes to mind, as does the Theodore Drury Grand Opera Company in New York. All these stories of collaboration are so interesting and so valuable in understanding the history of American opera. And I hope hearing about these composers, their stories, and their works today has inspired you to seek out more about them. Thank you for joining me today. Take care, and I'll see you at the opera. Tickets to LA Opera's 22-23 season are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.